Um, please pray with me. Lord, it's not, that, uh, it's not only that demons can't be cast out uh, except with prayer, but uh, we, we shouldn't really do much of anything without prayer. And I want to say maybe especially preaching, at least from my point of view, because the people you've gathered here this morning need much more than, you know, wordsmithing from a 50-year-old man, but need the Spirit to prevail. We're needful of the Spirit to prevail upon us. We look to you to be at work in and through this word. So would you do that? Would you apply it to our hearts? Would you, even as the people who showed up to the disciples said, would you show us Jesus? That's our prayer. Show us Jesus this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, in my humble opinion, one of the the Beatles' best songs uh, was a song called You Won't See Me. Uh, It came out in 1965 on the Rubber Soul album, and the song is credited uh, to Lennon and McCartney, but uh, Paul McCartney actually wrote it. Uh, He wrote it uh, in one night uh, right after his girlfriend, Jane Asher, had broken up with him. And, you know, for the longest time, I heard it, I heard the song basically as that story um, and nothing more, just as a breakup song. Uh, you know, one in which the girl breaks up with the guy and he, he desperately wants to patch it up, but she refuses, uh, refuses him, you know, won't pick up the phone, won't talk about it, uh, you know, won't see him. But a few years ago, you know, I was listening to that album again and um, I kind of heard the song differently. And maybe it's because I'm a little older. Um, but I heard it as more than a breakup song where only one person wants to break up with the other, but as the, you know, the lament of the end of a relationship in which one person never saw and refused to see the other person for who they truly are. You know, you won't see me. You won't see me for who I am. Well, you know, last week we kind of crossed the line into the second half of Mark and, and you know, The second half of this gospel really begins with a question, and it is that question. Will you see me? Will you see me for who I am? That's the question Jesus is asking. You know, and he asks it in this way. He says, who do you say I am? And uh, and Peter steps up, and and he gives an amazing answer, Uh, a correct answer, actually. He says, uh, you are the Christ. And, and, you know, Peter doesn't see Jesus like uh, the crowd sees him. They talked earlier in that conversation Jesus asks, How do the, what do the people say about me? And Peter doesn't see him in just the way the people see him as one more messenger in a long line of messengers from God. He sees him as the Christ, not just as a king, but as the king, as the Messiah, as God's Savior. But still, even though he sees Jesus rightly, you know, there's a sense in which he sees him inadequately. Um, Jesus doesn't reject his answer, but he does go on to correct it. He teaches, Mark tells us, He teaches them plainly about who he is. Jesus tells them, here's the kind of Christ I am. Uh, I must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Peter doesn't so much respond to that answer as he rages against it. (laughs) Pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him, uh, Mark says, intensely. Um, Peter's got some strong convictions about what uh, makes for a good Messiah. And, and Jesus isn't measuring up to that. He doesn't like his answer. Uh, you know, there's nothing in that answer about ascending a throne uh, or raising an army or restoring Israel to its former glory. That probably would have gone down well. But not only that, 
Jesus tells them he'll be delivered over to ruling authorities, detained, condemned, and killed. Uh, Jesus tells them he's going to the cross. And maybe most troubling of all, he tells them, if you want to call yourself a disciple of mine, if you want to save your life, you got to go there too. you got to go to the cross. Now, we're starting off this morning by looking at an event known as the Transfiguration, but it's in this event that the teaching about the person and the purpose of Jesus continues. There's a sense in which Jesus is still answering that question uh, about who he is, who do you say that I am? And, you know, Mark is not one for precise chronology. Um, He's not Luke. Uh, He'll never begin a sentence in reference to the King Herod administration. Um, He is all about movement. He's all about, you know, going from one event to another, immediately this and immediately that. And so when in the course of his gospel he does get specific with the chronology, you know, we do well to pay attention. And that's what he does here. Uh, He begins this passage by saying, six days later. Well, six days later from what? Uh, Six days since Jesus had that conversation about who he is about what it means that he's the Christ. It's now six days later. And it's at this point that he takes Peter, James, and John up a high mountain. And, you know, just stepping back for a second, we're already beginning to see gathered together in this narrative some ingredients that connect this account to another one in the Bible, Uh, specifically to Exodus 24, where God confirms the covenant with Israel by calling Moses and some companions up a high mountain. Um, after a six-day period. And that is really the climax of the Exodus story. It's the climax of it. Uh, Not the crossing of the Red Sea, not the plagues, you know, not all that other stuff. This is the climax, Exodus 24, and it's the climax because this is the place where Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. I've seen a lot of things. Now I want to see you in your glory. And God agrees, but there's provisos. There's protective measures that must be put in place, not for the Lord, but for Moses. He tells Moses that his glory will pass by him, uh, but, you know, uh, you've got to wedge yourself into a rock. And not only have you got to wedge yourself into a rock, as I pass by, I'm going to extend my protective hand, you know. Um, and the reason, you know, for all those, all those measures, all that protection is because of the single axiomatic truth in the Bible, and that is no one can see God and live. You can't see God and live. You can't walk on the surface of the sun. You can't stand in the unmediated presence of the, of, of the, perfectly, of the eternal holy God without it undoing you. No one can see God as, and live. If, if Moses is to survive, he can't witness that glory directly. So, so all that happens. The glory of God passes. Moses survives. And, and yet, even in that experience, you know, um, uh, his face radiates because the glory of God has been in his proximity. And that account really comes alive here with all these undeniable parallels. There's six days of preparation. There's going up the mountain with companions. We'll see in a minute that there's a cloud that descends, just as in Exodus 24. Just as in Exodus 24, a voice comes from the cloud. And, you know, if there's any doubt... Uh, Moses is in the actual story. (laughs) Moses shows up and he's with Elijah. But really the greatest parallel is this reality of the glory of God. That sits at the center, the burning center of both of these stories. So, you know, the parallels are undeniable, 
but also so are the ways in which these two stories part ways. Um, for starters, the disciples are never told to wedge themselves into a rock. Um, you know, they aren't protected from the glory. They are, they are witnesses to it. They see with their own eyes Jesus transfigured um, with his clothes radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And, and even as Jesus appears with Moses, he's, he's distinct from Moses. He's quite different. Not just one more prophet in a long line of prophets. Moses, you know, when Moses got near the glory, he reflected it. But Jesus isn't reflecting glory, right? He's radiating it. It is in him. And that first question that Jesus asked his disciples, you know, six days before, what are the people saying about me? It's still kind of hanging out there, isn't it? And the answer, you know, at the time was, well, you're like John the Baptist, you're like Elijah, you're like the prophets, that's what the people say. You're a special person who points other people to the Lord, just like those prophets. But here, you know, the answer that was corrected before is thoroughly repudiated. You know, as they witness Jesus, not just as one pointing to the Lord, but as one present as Lord. Not, not the, the one who's the sign, as one who's the destination. Not the messenger, the message. Not reflecting glory again, but, but radiating glory. This is, interestingly, among the first things the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus, um, that he is... Hebrews 1.3, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, it's worth pointing out that whenever human beings get anywhere near the glory of God, the immediate sensation is fear for your life. Terrified. That's why when angels show up in the Bible, you know, they never just show up and say, hey, what's up, John? Angel, got a message. No, what's the first thing they always say? Don't be afraid. Why do they say that? Because you have every reason to be afraid. Because one who has stood in the presence of God is now in your presence. And the experience of that is one of terror. It's one of feeling like my mortality is about to leave me. Entering into God's presence, as Moses well knew, requires one to be deeply aware of what they are entering into. And just so you think this is not, just so you know, this is not merely some Old Testament reality. You know, think about this next week when you show up for church. Hebrews 12. The writer urges that uh, Christian worshipers show up to worship with reverence and awe. For our God, here's the reason we ought to show up that way. For our God is what? A consuming fire. In the presence of the Lord, that requires of us reverence, awe. Mortals would do well to be sensible to conditions. Between 2011 and 2017, there were 259 deaths in this country that were listed as accidents, but the reality is, is that each one of them was a death by selfie. Death by selfie. These were people who died in the unsuccessful attempt of capturing a selfie of themselves. You know, capturing some social media worthy image of themselves on the edge of a cliff, you know, hanging off of a skyscraper, trying to get the grizzly bear in the frame, um, you know, one handed hang gliding, you know, all with the, with the hope of keeping themselves at the center of the picture, fatally failing to appreciate the precarious nature of their situation. Failing to 
appreciate that there were greater forces at work around them, forces, in fact, that threatened to do their own lives if they do not pay proper attention to those things. And in fact, it costs 259 people their lives. That's the tragedy of not being sensible to conditions. Now, all of that, I think, has to get us to contend with the fact that Peter and James and John, again, aren't wedged in rocks, but are laid bare before the divine glory, radiating from Jesus, and yet they don't die. Uh, striking as Jesus' uh, transfiguration is, you know, them surviving the experience is maybe more striking still. And, you know, the fact that they survived, and, you know, they, they seem to know that. They are deeply shaken. You know, their posture is not one of guys high-fiving each other for getting backstage passes to the Glory of God show. They, uh, Mark tells us in verse 6, they are terrified. And Peter is so terrified, we're told he doesn't know what to say. And so naturally, he starts talking. <laughs> and he says, Rabbi, it's good we're, that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, this suggestion to set up tents uh, is, is nothing to do with camping in the wilderness, uh, but has everything to do with worship. Uh, our translation has tent. Uh, your translation may have tabernacle, and that's a better translation. That's the word he uses. Um, so, you know, whether or not we're connecting this experience with the Exodus experience, Peter certainly is. Uh, he is suggesting that the logical thing to do in the here and the now is what they did in the there and the then when God's glory descended on that mountain. You build a tabernacle. Um, Peter knows the history. He knows that somehow or other they've survived. He's terrified by the experience, shaken by it, perhaps not eager to tempt fate a second time around. He proposes they put a little protective measure in place by building a tabernacle. And certainly tabernacles are about protection, but they are also critically about connection. Um, the tabernacle serves as the meeting place, the mediating place between mortals and the God who made them, between God and his covenant people. And so, you know, Peter puts a proposition out there, but God treats it almost like a question, um, almost as if Peter is saying, and I think he is saying, what are we supposed to do in a situation like this? <laughs> what do we do? And God answers that question. Uh, he answers uh, beginning with a cloud descending on Jesus and Moses and Elijah, the cloud of his presence, uh, just as on Sinai. And, and just as on Sinai, God speaks from that cloud. And what he says is, um, is critical to everything. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Uh, now, if the impossible happens once, you might attribute it to luck, but here it seems the impossible has happened again because once again, they're in the presence of the glory. Once again, they don't die. And the reason they don't is because of the answer God just gave. Uh, it's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus' presence. And God says something important about Jesus. He says, he's my beloved son. Again, we're back to that answer that's kind of unfolding further, that this is the kind of Christ he is. He is God's authorized Savior. He is the one sent for our salvation. And he also says, listen to him. And you can read that a couple of ways. You could read that as, listen to him. In other words, take the posture upon yourself that everything you need to know needs to be, needs, must come from him. Listen to him. That's the other way to hear it. Listen to him. 
And that word is confirmed by what they witness in verse 8, where suddenly, looking around, nobody's there but Jesus. And, and Mark, the language here really emphasizes that it is Jesus only. Peter's instincts, it turns out, about tabernacles weren't wrong. They were spot on. But again, you know, he's seeing but not clearly. They do need a tabernacle. They do need a, a way to get into the presence of God, a way to meet with God, a way to have fellowship with God, a means of protection and provision in order to be in that presence and receive from God what only he can give. And what's coming into focus now on this mountain is that the tabernacle isn't a place, it's a person. It's Jesus. That's where you meet God. That's where you receive all the benefits. That's where you find protection. Him and him alone. He's there, and critically, he's there alone. Moses and Elijah are gone, which communicates you don't get into his presence. You don't gain those benefits from what Moses represents in the law. Moses is nowhere to be seen. You, you, don't, you don't get those benefits and that protection and everything I spoke about with the tabernacle through the prophets. Elijah's gone too. Neither of them will give you everything you need. You need Jesus alone. You get in one way and one way only in Jesus, the true and everlasting tabernacle, the true and everlasting temple. In fact, when you look at, you know, the temple in the Bible, you can neither say that these things stand apart from the coming of Jesus and make sense just in and of themselves apart from him, but, but, but you can't say that they're just merely anticipations of the coming of Jesus either. You know, the book of Hebrews calls the temple, and incidentally, along with all the distinctive features of Israel, the priesthood, the prophets, the kingship, the kosher, the nation, as, all that stuff's referred to as shadows. What's a shadow? A shadow is a reflection of the substance. It's an indication that the substance is looming over it. And that's what all of this is. That's what the temple is, that indicating the eternal looming reality of the truer and greater thing in Jesus, the one who was before Abraham, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And this is how Jesus actually speaks about the temple himself. He says in John 2, you know, standing next to the temple, he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. And the religious leaders are standing there and going, what are you talking about? This thing took 46 years to build. And then Mark makes the comment that he was speaking about the temple of his body. He's the temple. And, and I just have to say, incidentally, I have to say this because it's prevalent in, in you know, some Christian circles um, this is why the notion that the temple will one day be reconstructed in Israel, in Jerusalem, with all of its rites and rituals, with the reestablishment of a priesthood, you know, I just can't put it any other way. That is utterly antithetical to the gospel. And, and the reason it is, is because the true and everlasting temple has come in Jesus. The, the sacrifice has been made by Jesus, fully and finally. He is the prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. Our life is in him. We don't have to make pilgrimages. Our worship is in him. That's what the actual temple was giving us a sense of anticipation for. He is our priest who takes us to God. Let me just try to illustrate this for a second. Imagine, you know, you're planning for the vacation of a lifetime. Um, you, you know, you scrimp and save for years, and, and, and during that time, as you're planning for this vacation, you know, 
you, you put up pictures on the fridge of the white sand beach that you will one day be sipping Mai Tais on. Um, you know, you, 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 you look over the travel brochures, you watch YouTube videos, all in anticipation of someday getting to that place. And, and then the day comes. You've saved up enough money. It's been, it's been a while, but you arrive at that destination of a lifetime. You get to your hotel room. You unpack the bag. But instead of pulling out of that bag a swimsuit and suntan lotion to hit the beach, you pull out all the old pictures, the brochures, the laptop, and you watch the video of the place where you've already arrived and you never leave your room. You know, the real thing is right outside the door and tragically, you have fallen in love with all the things that you had that were provided to you for anticipation, the picture, the brochure, and the video, but outside is your satisfaction. That is what it means that Jesus has come. All the wonderful things God has done in redemption before Jesus were given for anticipation, but satisfaction is in him. Now, for all that happened on that mountain, Mark dedicates about more than half of this account to what happens as they come down the mountain. Jesus again tells his disciples, don't tell anybody, don't tell them. This time he says, until the resurrection uh, they've glimpsed the glory, but the resurrection is yet to happen. And in order for anyone to fully understand what it all means, it's got to be in light of that. Um, and, he, and he says, you know, he says, wait until I'm raised from the dead. You know, which again to these disciples is another reminder that he's got to die. That certainly would have stuck in the craw. Um, a week prior, Jesus made the same statement that he must be arrested and tried and condemned and killed and that statement produced, you know, a bitter rebuke from Peter. Um, but this time, Peter doesn't rebuke him. And you kind of wonder, is he getting used to the idea? Well, I just want to tell you, he's not. Not exactly. Uh, there is pushback uh, in this passage, not only from Peter, but from the disciples. But this time, it comes in a much more roundabout way, and it, in, in, in a much more subtle way. Um, Mark tells us they kept the matter to themselves. They're questioning what this raising of, rising from the dead may mean. And so they push back on it, but they push back in this way. They use the old just asking questions technique. I'm not saying anything. I'm just asking questions. You know, um, it's like imagine, you know, completely theoretical scenario here. Imagine you're behind the wheel and, you know, again, theoretically, maybe you're, you know, you have a history as a couple uh, over fighting over the best way uh, to, best route to take on a trip. And, you're, you know, your spouse asks at some point, you know, are you sure this is the best way? And, you know, it, it all sounds innocent enough. But it is a, it's complete opposition, right? You know, the question is a way of saying you're going the wrong way. And, and I think that's kind of what's behind this question that the disciples put to Jesus when they ask, why did the scribes first say that first, Eli why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? That's a way of saying... Um, you're going the wrong way. We know how this goes. This whole business of Elijah coming is a reference to the last prophecy in the last book of the Old Testament uh, where it said that Malachi, the book of Malachi, where it said that before the great day of the Lord comes, Elijah will show up. And that's a signal that the Lord will restore things to the way they ought to be, the day of the Lord. And, and they'd just seen Elijah standing right next to Jesus. And, and so the next logical thing is, well, isn't the day of the Lord here? 
And, and Jesus, all you want to talk about is not the day of the Lord, but about death and resurrection. You see, the disciples seem to have a vision of the kingdom uh, without a cross, of glory without agony, of resurrection without death. And, and Jesus answers their question. Uh, he says, Elijah, Elijah does come to restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. He's telling them, for starters, that the coming of the day of the Lord didn't start half an hour ago on the mountain. Uh, it started long before that. It started when Elijah came in the person of John the Baptist, and he wants them to pay attention to how he came. You know, he didn't come and, you know, triumph over the Romans. He came and he suffered and he died. Uh, his arrival signals the arrival of the Messiah, and there's a sense in which his Life and his death signal the life and the death of the Messiah. So in short order, they're at the foot of the mountain reuniting with the other disciples, and they come up on this chaotic scene. And it's chaos, we'll find out, that's due largely in part to the disciples themselves. They've been trying to exercise a demon from a boy, and they've had no success. And to make matters worse, it's all been done uh, in front of an audience, and an audience with some scoffers. There's teachers of the law there who are arguing with them as they do this. Uh, and I think it's not too big a leap to say they're probably delighting in their lack of success. Now, this boy's affliction has made him deaf. It's made him mute. It's caused him to thrash around and foam at the mouth. And this is affecting everyone around him. There's helplessness in the disciples. There's hard-heartedness in the teachers of the law. And there's a father there. And the father's heartbroken. And, and we come to find out the reason uh, why, at the end of our passage, why they can't help this child. And interestingly, it's not because of what they're doing. It's because of what they never did. Uh, they never prayed. They are attempting a prayerless exorcism. And at first you might think, you know, at first glance you might think, well, only if they'd been stronger disciples. If only they'd been stronger disciples, more spiritual, more, you know, um, competent and in control, they would have prayed. But I want to suggest that it's precisely because they imagined themselves to be strong that they didn't pray. That, I think, is the source of all prayerlessness. It, it, people who consider themselves strong and capable and up to the task don't pray. To the degree that someone like that does pray, and you know, it's often perfunctory. It's often a nice to have but not need to have exercise, you know, um, engaged in before we get to the actual substance of the thing we want to do. You know, something important, but not as important as getting to the work. But here's the thing: prayer is the work. It's the work. People aren't prayerless because they're weak. We're prayerless because we're arrogant. So I can imagine the disciples felt like, you know, they could handle this clearly. You know, and, and it doesn't say why. Maybe it's because of their experience. Maybe it's because of their religiosity, uh, their hard work, uh, their personal sacrifice and leaving their professions to follow Jesus. Maybe it's their sense of having been close to Jesus, walking alongside him, having seen him do this before, um, being observers to, to the mechanics of how this thing goes. But somewhere along the way, you know, they seem to have embraced a discipleship of imitation, but not one of dependence. And it's all the difference in the world. 
Because Jesus didn't come to just be a good example. He came to be our life, our Savior. Stepping back, it appears that the hearts of the disciples at the top of the mountain aren't a lot different than the hearts of the disciples at the bottom. Because a prayerless, exor- a prayerless exorcism is attempted, I think for the same exact reason that tabernacle construction was suggested. Because there is blindness to their own weakness and blindness to the sufficiency, the utter sufficiency of Jesus. You know, they're a lot like me and maybe a lot like you where you see life and its troubles as something to be mulled over, as something to be managed, as something to be met with hard work. And, and, you know, nothing wrong with mulling things over, nothing wrong with managing, nothing wrong with effort. Uh, But those things become disastrous when they become the stuff of your life. Uh, They become disastrous when it keeps you from relying on Jesus, when you imagine that you can secure a life for yourself when it becomes the stuff that Jesus called back in chapter 8, verse 35, you know, the things we do to save our life. And he says that will certainly guarantee that life is lost. And that's why he calls his followers not to modifying their way of life, but to mortifying it, to dying to the self-saving way of living in order that we might secure life in him. And that, that's not to say that all the activities of the self-saving way of life won't keep you busy. They will. Uh, that kind of life might get you some money, might get you some success, uh, might get you some respect. You know, it may do that, and it may do a lot more than that, but what it will certainly do is keep you from Jesus. So while the disciples are despondent about their failures and the religious leaders are kind of delighting in it, there's one person there who emerges Uh, who gets this, and he gets it because he's gotten to the point where he's too desperate to play games. He knows life is unmanageable. It is chaos. He knows he can't handle it. So the disciples are hardworking. The teachers of the law are hard-hearted, but this father, again, is heartbroken. And from a biblical standpoint, that is not a bad place to be. It hit me like a ton of bricks a few years ago in the Psalms where it says that the Lord is near the brokenhearted, and I just, I just thought, so much of my time and energy in my life is spent avoiding brokenheartedness. And, and the Bible says that the Lord's near the brokenheartedness. And if I'm spending all my time and energy in life avoiding the brokenheartedness, maybe I'm avoiding the nearness of the Lord. This man is at that place. He is the only one willing to admit he lacks any ability to do anything at all to help his son He's lived with this since this boy was a, was a little boy. Uh, he's seen this his whole life. You know, sometimes this demon tries to kill him by burning him, other times by drowning him. And in this moment, he takes one singular action that changes everything. He doesn't look to himself. He looks to Jesus. Uh, he goes to him and asks for help, and he says, if there's anything you can do for him, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus' answer at first seems kind of, you know, impertinent. He goes, if you can... Anything is possible for one who believes. And, and, you know, I just want to point out, Jesus commends belief as, as a very big deal. It is the whole ball game. So, so please don't think of belief as, you know, some Disney-fied, rubbing a genie lamp, wishing upon a star, 
treacly, sentimental thing to do before you get on to the practical things of following Jesus. It is following Jesus. It was by believing that Abraham was justified and all his covenant people. Uh, it is by believing that if you are a Christian, you are justified. By belief. Jesus describes, in fact, someone comes to him and says, tell us what we must do to do the works of God. And Jesus says, believe. Believe on the one whom God has sent. So Jesus isn't urging sentimentality. He's not urging superhuman faith. He's not saying, you know, just believe hard enough. He's saying that the only way you can be helped is by turning from self-reliance to relying on me. That's what it means to be believed, to, to believe. So true faith isn't about the strength of the faith, as we say often here. It's about the object. And the Father's answer, well, it's just one of the great answers in the whole Bible. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Those are the words of someone whose heart is broken. He admits, I think, what so many of us feel, but maybe are afraid to say out loud. It's like, man, I'm trying, but I feel the feebleness. My best efforts have failed me. I want to have strong faith, but I'm actually afflicted with doubt. Uh, I want to be capable to handle this, but I'm weak, and I fail all the time. Help me. And, and you know, before I tell you how Jesus answers the man, I, I just want to tell you how he doesn't answer. He doesn't say, look, I've just stood in the glory cloud and received the full endorsement from God the Father in the presence of Moses and Elijah, so you need to rid your heart of doubts, show me you're totally surrendered, utterly sold out, and once I see that kind of faith, once I stop hearing you say things like, help my unbelief, then I'll do something for you. That's not how he answers the man. Uh, his answer, in fact, doesn't come by any demand at all. He simply goes to the boy and delivers him. Uh, you see, the, the father can only really see the faithfulness of Jesus, I think, once he's ad admitted his own lack of faithfulness. He, he can only see the power of Jesus and his weakness. Th that's really the picture of true faith. Not merely depending on Jesus, but also despairing of yourself. You know, later on when they're in private, the disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't cast out the demon. They'd, they'd been around him. They'd seen it. They'd observed what, he'd, what they thought they should do and say and knew this, this kind of thing couldn't be done. And, you know, and they couldn't do it. And again, Jesus tells them, you know, the reason you couldn't do it is, it, is this kind can't be driven out by anything but prayer. And it makes its own point. You can hang out with Jesus. You can hear the words of Jesus. You can watch what Jesus does. And you can do all that and be insulated from dependence on Jesus. So when Jesus says this can only be done by prayer, he's not talking about, you know, prayer as an incantation, incantation to kind of, you know, release the power. He's saying that there's no power in what you think is your power, your sense of competence, your sense of control, your techniques, your adjacency to Jesus. The power comes only by invoking the one who is power himself by looking to the Savior, the only one capable of setting the captives free. You are prayerless because you think too much of yourselves and too little of me. Look to Jesus. See him for who he really is. He is the Christ. He is the King. He is sent by God to suffer and die and be raised. He has conquered death. He has called his people to newness of life in him. And don't just look to him, live in him. 
Live in Him in such a way that we're despairing of self and delighting in Him, relying on Him, relishing new life in Him. He is life. He is glory. He is our salvation. This is pictured at this table. You want to understand this table rightly if you are hungry and thirsty and heartbroken and feeling incompetent to handle your own life, you are perfectly well-suited to come if your faith is in Christ. So let's pray as we approach this time. Lord Jesus, you're a great Savior. Um, you, are, uh, you are our temple. You are the meeting place where uh, we are, find our reconciliation with our Father, where we find our rest in you, where we find, in fact, all of our resources for life. So, Lord, it's a funny thing to, you know, we, we, we have a category of repenting for our sins, appropriately so, you know, but I, maybe we can expand that a little bit as we come up here and repent of all the ways in which we've tried to make a life for ourselves, you know, ways in which maybe the world will congratulate us, ways in which, um, you know, we might gain some measure of the things that this world has to offer, which aren't bad in themselves, but are disastrous when we try to save ourselves in that way. So, Lord, we, we want to ask you to meet us here. It's, we, we take your promise seriously that you're with us even to the end of the age. That means you're here at this meal. You're spiritually present at work through it. Would you, would you deepen the impact of grace in our lives? Would you, Lord, expand our vision for our Savior? Would we know that we have communed here with the living God? Uh, Lord, would we know that the hungry and thirsty are fed here. Uh, and Lord, would you feed us not just for our own private experience, but would you feed us to the end that you would get glory, that our lives would be used in such a way that it works to the good of our neighbor, that it works to the good of our city, that we would be able to do all the wonderful things you've called us to do in family and career and recreation, every, everything we're engaged in, to the glory of God and with great gratitude. Lord, work that in us. Uh, that we would be depending on you in all things and giving you glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.